0: At what point would you say you felt the need to put your seatbelt up? <laughs> I think it's when we hit this one bump that my head almost hit the roof
1: of the Land Cruiser. <laughs> Welcome to the Interwilderness Podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is a modern Huntsman production. In this week's show, I'm taking you back to the end of 2023 when I was in Chad. I was there with a good friend of mine, Sean, from the Conservation Film Company, which he runs with Ivan Carter, who you will have heard on this podcast before. We were there to document an incredible conservation success story, and you're going to hear all about that in this show, along with his process of filmmaking and the way that he likes to storytell. It's a great conversation that we recorded on the last day of our trip, just prior to getting on the plane from our hotel room, so you'll have to excuse the odd beep of a horn outside and the sound of the AC, but I'm really glad to finally get Sean on the show, um, having spent quite a bit of time together filming in Mozambique a couple of years ago, but not having the opportunity to collar him for an interview. But before we get into it, a thank you and shout out to the top tier Patreon supporters who this week include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Dick Ekstromer, Mark Zabrowski, who I had the pleasure of meeting for the first time a couple of weeks ago, Leslie Cumming and the team at Gilly UK Clothing. Um, I think you've done a really shit job with how you've mounted your mic. Have sure. I? Yeah, you have. How do you want to? Let me, let me do it for you. It? Have you done this before?
0: No, it's a first. <laughs> it's a first time. Byron, you mount a mic.
1: There you go. There you go. That's, that's going to be much better. Very intimately. <laughs> and that's the opening of the podcast.
0: <laughs>
1: Sean, welcome to the Interworldness podcast. Thank you very much, Byron Pate. Appreciate you having me. We are currently uh, sitting in a hotel room in Chad, about to get on a plane in like two hours time home after f- 15
0: days here? Something, something like that, <laughs> like yeah. That. Well, <laughs> what on earth has brought us to Chad, Sean? Well, it's been quite an interesting project. And as you know, we've had quite a bit of travel time getting here and you could say that. getting back. At least half of this trip has been journey from South Africa and Scotland, respectively, to N'Djamena in Chad. And it's been a really interesting trip. I came out here to Chad once before in 2016 and really fell in love with the place, visiting Ennady and Zakuma, and then did some further filming in Niger, uh, or Niger, however you say it. In, uh, I think it depends what part of the world you're from. <laughs> yeah, um, in 2019 for giraffe translocation with uh, with Giraffe Conservation Foundation. and. Uh, that further piqued my interest to this part of the world, the Sahara and you know this whole Sahel region. And through that film that I made, um, I got in touch with John Newby from the Sahara Conservation Fund. And that led to me learning a bit more about the work they're doing here, namely the reintroduction of scimitar-horned oryx and addax into this landscape, which was always their natural range Um, but they became extinct in, I believe it was the late 70s or early 80s, somewhere around there with all of the conflict that was taking place in the country at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a population or sort of unintentionally an insurance population of these animals in around the world, but mainly in the UAE. And in Abu Dhabi specifically, there was a really healthy population of diverse genetics. And over time, they've taken on this project to reintroduce the species back into the wild. And I believe the first reintroduction was in 2014. And since then they've done about 14 shipments of animals, 25 at a time, starting mainly with Oryx and then bringing in Addax down the line. And we were brought, the conversation with John Newby was for us to come in and make a film about it and create a film that showcases the the work that they're doing here. and. Initially, that started out as, you know, wanting to do something that could be used in an effort to raise a third round of funding to continue the project going forward. Uh, but in the interim, they actually secured that funding. So we've got a funded film that we're making for them, but now it's somewhat open-ended as to what we do with it, uh, which is, I think, for us as creatives, you know, always, quite exciting. always a nice thing to have. You know, yeah. it's always great when when it's pretty open-ended and it's not... There's not too much of a brief. Um, we've got a great relationship with John, and and he's very open to us making what we want to make. You know, so it allows us to play um, while while ticking some boxes for them as well.
1: I'm sure a lot of people know of the Sahara and the Sahara Desert and have a picture in their mind from some of the big blue chip uh, blue chip documentaries about what that looks like and the kind of environment that is. This is a little bit further south than that. It's like the, the tailings of the Sahara. It has that sort of feeling. But just place us on the continent of Africa because some people, in fact, I would I would hazard a guess most people who listen to this podcast maybe have never even heard of chat.
0: And the the interesting thing as well is also coming from Southern Africa myself, you know, based in Cape Town and uh, and living in South Africa, speaking to many people there, they also don't know about it. You know, I think it was more more Europeans that would generally travel to this part of Africa. Because it was it used to be a French colony. Exactly. But, you know. It used to be a French colony. And so I think Chad will actually be classified as West Africa, not North Africa. Huh. Um, we can check that out. Yeah. <laughs> Don't quote me. But... And um, yet it almost...
1: Yeah. I, I, you would think in where it's positioned, it would be North Africa. But I can see that West African influence there too.
0: Exactly. And it, it's in the Sahel, Sahelian belt, which is... Receives slightly more rainfall than the Sahara itself. So you've got these massive countries, you know, Algeria, Libya, um, all of these these countries that encompass much of the Sahara itself. And if you if you look at it on the map, it's pretty staggering how massive they are. Uh, which is kind of true for Chad as well. The the northern parts of Chad border Libya um, as one of the countries they're bordering. But there's the Tibesti mountain range, which is very arid there. As as well as the Enidie Mountain Range, um, or Enidie Massive as, as they call it, um, which is all sandstone rock formations and incredibly beautiful. You've been there, haven't you? I have been there and that was the 2016 trip we did. And that's part of what made me fall in love with this part of the world is the nomads, that's that you get the Tubu and the, the Toreg tribe that, uh, that live in that area or, or pass through it as nomads. And uh, the lives they live is fascinating. And I think it's something so foreign to us, you know, from Southern Africa or from Europe or, you know, for anyone who hasn't traveled this part of the world. It's, it's very different. And from a filmmaking perspective, it's also very visually striking, both the landscape um, that we're in as well as, you know, the people that you find here. I was
1: surprised to see... Such big, open, vast grass plains. Essentially, not everywhere that we've been, but the, the the sort of the core of the is it classed as a reserve where we were? It is, yes, yeah. yeah. The sort of core of the
0: reserve there was just to the horizon, grass plains. And, and to place us, that that reserve is Wadi Rime, Wadi Ashim, um, which is an area that is seventy thousand square kilometers. So. You know, almost double the size of Belgium, you know, yeah. as a country, which is, <laughs> which is <wild>. one reserve, <laughs> you know, which is crazy. Um, Wadi, Wadi is water. What is is, I believe so, yeah, runoff, uh, I or think, wetter areas catchment anyway. area yeah, catchment for areas. water, I mm-hmm. think, I'm not sure exactly, but so, something along those lines. And uh I mean, that, that's been an interesting part of this trip and we've spoken a lot about water and just thinking about the people that, that live in this landscape, how do you survive here? You know, it, it receives more rainfall than the Sahara itself, but it's still pretty arid. Yeah, you know? and and it's and freaking hot. And we're to, not
1: even here in the hottest time of
0: year. <laughs> exactly. It's been above 40 degrees Celsius most days and you've got you know nomads and camel caravans that are out in that sun all day there's not exactly much shade out on those <laughs> grass plains um, there's not many trees but somehow they managed to exist here with their livestock and uh, carve out an existence for themselves which is really interesting
1: when we eventually got here having spent multiple days getting the journey to the place we eventually were in a position where the following morning this shipment of animals was coming from Abu Dhabi. Tell me about that morning.
0: Well, to give a bit of context, we'd been in in Germena, the capital of Chad, for, which is where we are now. Which is where we are now for a few days. Um, I think it was three or four days already. So that's the most anticipation I've ever had to start filming. We hadn't <laughs> rolled on anything as yet. Um, and then it was finally finally time to begin, and it was on one of the most important parts of the trip that we were It was quite a lot of on. pressure, actually. It was. Um, we did, at that
1: point in time, <laughs> although there was a second shipment coming before we were supposed to leave, these things change. And sometimes they don't happen. Permits don't get put in place in time, and suddenly it's bumped a week, and then maybe we weren't going to get a chance to film the second shipment. So it was... I mean, all in all, probably it's only an hour from start to finish, where it was one of the most important things that we were filming. And it was the first thing that we were filming, which we've had this discussion before. It's nice when you arrive on a job and you kind of had a chill afternoon and you maybe go on safari and just hit hit record on on some wildlife, very low stakes filming, where if it doesn't work or something's wrong, or there's been an issue with your kit that you need to fix while you've been traveling, it doesn't matter that you didn't get it, but that was not the first
0: morning we were rolling, and we had two cameras, which is great, you know. But in that situation, not having started and not figuring out how exactly we're going to split split the rolls to maximize content, mm-hmm. uh, we had to kind of figure that out on the fly as well, you know, kind of diving straight into it. And we also came here with pretty little context on. Who are the characters we're focusing on <laughs> Yeah, we, we tried we didn't really know who anyone was on the first morning <laughs> exactly and, and despite us you know asking several times <laughs> we didn't get too much information on that but uh i think we found our feet as soon as we got into we it did.
1: so what was the what was the offload like because it was seeing that plane arrive was pretty spectacular
0: it was really impressive uh I'm not sure, do you know what the plane was? was It's it's a big
1: Russian plane. It's got wings and four massive engines and makes a lot of noise.
0: (laughs) How did they describe it to us? It was semi-pressurized.
1: Yeah, semi. (laughs) because I asked that question. They said it was so cold inside, so there was no heating in there. It's just this giant chamber. I mean, you could could probably drive two vehicles side-by-side in there, I would think. I think there was enough. Two Land Rovers would fit side-by-side in there and maybe, I don't know, 10?
0: Probably. I would think. Yeah, 10 long, it, it's huge. They easily fit 25 reinforced crates, yeah. each holding an animal separately, you know, so that didn't seem to be too much of an issue. So it was initially, we really wanted to make it to Abu Dhabi and actually film the move over. But just politically to try get the filming permits and things we needed through in time, it didn't really work out. So at first we were you know, somewhat disappointed that we couldn't film that part of it. But what we realized is that actually then presented an opportunity in terms of the film because we could actually do something different to at least any translocation film I've seen where we can actually start the film with the translocation, the arrival of these animals mm. and them getting taken to uh, to Wadi Rime. and. Cause that's normally the pinnacle. Exactly. Uh, everything builds to that point normally. Yeah. Exactly. Normally a film builds up to this you know, crescendo where there's this big release of these animals. But I think true to the story is we're also coming into it at a point where it's been happening for a number of years. And this is just another shipment coming on a, you know, it runs like clockwork and no one's too stressed about it, even though it's, you know, 300 kilometers on a really terrible road to okay, get the trucks that out there. <laughs> um, you know, they they seem to be fine with it. So they, they've done it so many times that, it's a pretty smooth operation and not focusing too much on the actual relocation of these animals itself in the story actually felt right and it was a good kind of impactful introduction that can bring us into the place um, which then allows us to explore more of the project and what's actually been happening there once we get to to what he remarved, what he with the animals.
1: And these sort of bigger ambitions of the project, which is beyond just having these hooves on the ground again, because their story is so much bigger than that.
0: Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. And there's there was so much to dig into, you know, and I think both of And we of were us, discovering it as we went along as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Back to the point on not much context, yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding. Yeah. laughs> That road,
1: so the, the lorries left, we started driving, we sort of come out of town that was kind of, uh, I've been through very similar towns like that leaving, but then you kind of hit the dirt road outside of town and it is a bit of a slog. It
0: was pretty slow
1: going, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, there's no,
1: by the way, there's no tar. <laughs> just so you know, no, it's, it's basically road just dirt roads. All these
0: little water runoffs yeah. that you have to cross. So for a truck, it's not easy going. It's pretty slow, although Something I think we were both pretty impressed with is the pace that those trucks took that road with. Uh, they it didn't, was pretty they fast. didn't waste any time. Let's put
1: it this way. There were times <laughs> where we wanted to get past them so that we could film trucks coming towards us or fly a drone or just get some other shot that we hadn't got. And it was a true rally driving effort by our driver in order to get past these three trucks and then far enough ahead for us to stop and get out and get the shots. And even then it was frantic.
0: At what point would you say you felt the need to put your seatbelt on?
1: <laughs> I think it's when we hit this one bump that my head almost hit the roof of the Land Cruiser. And almost at the same time, I see you fiddling around trying to find where your seatbelt goes. And I was like, if we roll, I want my seatbelt on. So yeah, and
0: after that point, I put my seatbelt on quite a lot. So these trucks were going at sort of 70, 80 kilometers an hour, or maybe a bit less, maybe 60, they were probably 70 kilometers 60 Ks yeah. An hour. Um, but to pass them, we needed to go off the road, so we're completely just driving through the bush, and there's just short grass, so there's not too much, but there's still a lot of bumps, and you can't really see what's there. So if he was to, at 80, 90 k's an hour, hit hit one of those bumps, I don't know how that would have played out. But.
1: We survived. I was a little, little concerned about my life at one point. <laughs> but also it. gear, like on a maybe slightly more serious note, although we were flying through there was you've got all this gear that we're balancing uh, on the back seat and I think on in both of our minds the first thing is protecting our cameras exactly from getting damaged because with if the camera's damaged it's the beginning of the trip (laughs) it's the beginning of the trip (laughs) which is always my greatest concern
0: exactly and uh yeah, it's on the one hand we were really lucky because we had our own vehicle, so we had a Land Cruiser to ourselves, yeah. which was great. But also to try you know up the up the production value of what we're trying to do on this trip, we we also brought a lot of kit. So um, we wanted to try keep the you know sensitive camera stuff um, as protected as possible. So we kept that in the cab with us, but that meant we were stacked up to the roof <laughs> with all of our stuff, which. On the first trip to, from Obechi to the base camp, uh, that was fine. But I think by the fourth trip... Yeah, we, were like, we, we, were we definitely both had, had enough route. of traveling with big cameras on our laps.
1: <laughs> Eventually, when we, we came to get out, we'd, we'd packed everything up. And what a much more pleasant experience that was. <laughs> so uh, I think it, it pretty much went off without a hitch, that, that road trip. Apart from one moment where a truck got
0: stopped. Um, or got stuck in it some was, very soft sound. It was Which made for some pretty cool going. filming, actually. It did, yeah, and stuck. there was, you know, always from a filmmaking perspective, yeah. not that you wish it, you know, not that you wish for there to be drama or hiccups or anything along the way, but trucks getting stuck, things like that, That's always sweet. always add to the journey and and just show some of the challenges. In general, it goes pretty smoothly, but it is a really challenging journey, you know, it's not driving on a tarmac for... 200 kilometers, it's it's something completely different. So uh, the trucks getting stuck at that point actually helped quite a bit. It was in this fine powder sand uh, that kicked up a lot of yeah. dust and and made for some really cool visuals.
1: It amazed me, I mean, it was freaking hot. I was, to give you an idea of how hot it, it got, we had bottles of water and I never seemed to quite have enough water, but within less than an hour of that bottle of water being at our feet or beside us in the vehicle. It was as hot, if not hotter than bath water. You could almost like make coffee in it, (laughs) which if you've ever, I mean, maybe some some people like uh, drinking hot water. I absolutely do not. (laughs) It's pretty gross. (laughs) And when you're sweating and just absolutely roasting in this cab, the last thing you want is hot water to drink at some point you get thirsty enough to start yeah, at some it. point you do but um, it's a pretty hard yeah, it's pretty hard going um, i was amazed at the resilience of those animals
0: unbelievable
1: because you think they're in these wooden crates and they've just done this massive journey and now they're on now the airflow they were saying, the vets were saying it's the airflow that's important because yeah it's baking out there but the airflow allows them to cool down but even still you just i just thought to myself how on earth are these animals surviving this journey well, but they're tough as hell because they live there that's where they were from originally
0: and even the addax more so than the oryx because the addax generally live further north yeah. you know so even in in more of a desert environment i mean where they're living i don't know the full details on it actually but where they're living, there's no drinkable water. There's no groundwater. Yeah, John was so saying they, they don't
1: really drink. They don't drink. Like they, they will drink, to, you know, if the opportunity arises. In the rainy season, yeah. when there's
0: water there, they will. Uh, but they don't need it, which is remarkable. <laughs> it just blows your mind.
1: And we got there, and pretty almost on like the edge of darkness. The sun was dropping very fast, and then it was release time.
0: Exactly, and we had no idea how this release was gonna play out. we haven't seen one yet. (laughs) It was pretty crucial. So we pushed ahead at the last minute to be there for the arrival of the trucks, but there was no one there to really guide us. So we arrived at where we thought the trucks were gonna arrive and uh, they ended up going somewhere different, which, was close enough, luckily, and it wasn't wasn't a big deal. There was actually enough time in the end, but- I
1: could tell that you've been r- running for training recently because you definitely left me behind <laughs> <laughs> as we
0: started running towards <laughs> the trucks. A little bit of panic fueled uh, yeah. gas. <laughs> uh, we also then started filming, but the offload was happening and it was pretty quickly getting dark. So, you know, we stopped and I figured we had to fit some sort of lighting onto the crates to get any of it, you know. And luckily, we were able to film the first release mm-hmm. uh, while there was still which enough actually light. Actually, really pretty. And I was on the Ursa 12K, which is not a remarkable camera for low light, you know. So I was actually running out of light a bit ahead of you, and I was trying to figure out what the best plan was. I also had the Blackmagic 6K Pro, um, which I probably should have switched over to a bit sooner, but. I figured in the meantime it was worth the time to dig out our bags from the vehicle and try get some lights and we had some small uh aperture mc pro lights that we Amazing. just magneted to the to the containers and that actually yielded some really cool shots did, on the last oryx yeah. and we, we would have had nothing of that if, if we didn't rig up a bit of lighting so probably a good thing in the yeah. end on uh,
1: the morning after that the that kind of elation and high on success. All the animals made it. There was no fatalities, which was fantastic. And then we started to really dig into what the rest of the story was. So to your point earlier about that not being the pinnacle of the story that we were telling, that's how basically the story is going to start when this film plays out. How did you start to pull together in your head this picture of what this short doc is going to be? Because it is quite a process and for I'm sure there's a lot of people who enjoy watching that stuff. You know, whether it's short films by Patagonia or Yeti did that for a, lot, uh, a long time as well. I think they have in sort of recent years. But there's a there's a a lot that goes into working out what the the structure and story flow is going to be, and you don't,
0: as was the case in this instance, always know what it's going to be when you arrive. I think with what we're doing, it's you know often a lot of it is quite short term in its nature so we we tried to get as much information as we could before we got here but it was relatively limited and we kind of needed to see the project we needed to meet people who could be potential characters for the film yeah, you don't always know that exactly and and then also you know with it being a commissioned piece understand some of the politics behind it, who needs to appear in the film? You know, who who do we need to highlight and, and what important messages are there from a foundation perspective that, um, or organization perspective that need to come across? So figuring all those things out, I think is a good starting point. And then once you've got an idea of what you're working with, it's also this question of trying to figure out, well, what visual elements and what scenes could you film to help tell this story and and what's important you know and as we got to spend a bit of time speaking to the people on the ground with the project we started to learn more about the success of the animals and you know these these animals have been introduced but and i think it's something like 270 oryx that have been introduced at this point but today that population is 600 oryx and that sort of thing is essential for the success. Mm. You know, well, that's true success. It can't yeah. be just oryx that are brought in because mm. that's not sustainable in the long term. They need to breed, you know, in their natural habitat and uh, and proliferate, proliferate through that, and hopefully at some point stop bringing animals in because the population in and of itself is viable. Which mm. I think yeah, it probably is, is at that and point. Was,
1: John was just saying that they're about to IUCN is about to downgrade exactly the, the risk level of them by one category.
0: Which is amazing. Which is amazing. What a success. Exactly. And uh, so that that beca- it became clear that that was one element of it, you know, and obviously with the Oryx and the Addax being sort of the flagship species of the project, as well as the Dharma gazelles, they were important species to highlight. So we wanted to make sure that we could capture a good amount of wildlife B-roll, you know, sort of as blue chip as possible um, with what we had available to try and just film it really well. and and shoot some cinematic visuals of these species in their natural habitat because that in and of itself is something very special about this project because there's nowhere else in the world where that's happening and that's the case. So it is really unique and that was that was important to highlight. It was. And then we started to understand the
1: long-term desire to have this ecosystem and a landscape work and function with people in it, because it is a landscape with people in it. Which, while there are other places where that exists in the world, it is kind of unique here, where that is the ambition from the very beginning. It's not a case where you can't put a fence around this area and kick people out, because there has always been people traversing through here. Uh, How did you go about then capturing that cultural element to it, which, as we
0: discovered was going to be an important part of the storytelling that's something that I think is pretty unique about this project as well is the the approach to community involvement and and you know it stems from what you mentioned now it's it is a landscape where there are people living in it and there is no plan to you know get all of the people out and create a fence around it and it wouldn't work in this context here in Chad. So a different approach is needed. And since the beginning, John Newby, who's um, you know, was the one that brought all of this filming about, has a fascinating perspective on it all. And he's been in Chad since since he was in his late teens or early twenties, and he's actually married to a Chadian woman, and he understands the context really well here. And I think to his credit, he's Making sure that this whole project follows that approach and, and looks at the people first because without the Chadian custodianship, it doesn't have a future. You know, without that buy in that these are their animals versus their animals. Their animals yeah. it's, it's, it, it's very, it
1: seems like a subtle distinction, but it's incredibly important. Exactly. If you and feel like it's something that um, belongs to you and so you want to care for it from a, from a country perspective, sort of national pride and of course it is a symbol Absolutely. of this part of the world the semitown darks
0: and without that it won't be successful in the long term but also it's a process to get there and it, it will take years to get to that but they're constantly planting those seeds and getting people involved that uh that are really trying to do that you know really trying to um upskill themselves and and be involved in the project and they've got a whole monitoring team that uh that, that is taking care of these animals and you can you know judging by the interviews we did you mm-hmm. can tell how proud they are yeah. of having these animals here Absolutely. but sorry to answer your question for the how to capture the community and cultural side of of the story serendipitously John had actually organized for two old guys to be interviewed that uh, that Remember the days when there were ADAX and Oryx in this landscape. Just amazing. Which we loved. You yeah. know, that's exactly the sort of thing we wanted to film. And it was a challenge to try to figure out exactly how we do it. Because we were also speaking Arabic as well. <laughs> yeah, we understood <laughs> nothing. nothing. <Yeah. laughs> but then it was also these two guys. And generally, stylistically, we've been doing these sit down interviews with one character at a time. And so now it was trying to figure out a way to incorporate these two guys in, in one conversation mm-hmm. and then a few days earlier we had an opportunity to visit a well which was quite an interesting scene and it's it's one of the coolest things I've it's right up there in like top 10 coolest things I've ever filmed it's so amazing you know it's just something that's so foreign to us so basically to explain it there are these wells in the desert that have been some supplemented by NGOs at some point and excavated further so the well we visited was 130 meters deep and had a concrete shaft going down but that was about it and the locals had made a wooden pulley system with ropes that they used camels to pull up 50 liters of water at a time and they had this whole complex system for how they operate that and it's actually very well structured because everyone from the surrounding area would bring their livestock in to come and be watered and there was a whole pecking order and a queue for who got to water their livestock when and a communication system for the camels to stop pulling the rope at the right time which was generally operated by one of their children (laughs) it seemed like it
1: these tiny little kids either riding a camel or walking or running alongside the camel to take it 130 meters out to pull this bucket up (laughs) and then they would shout into the well and it had this great echo echo, which I can only assume was just to make it louder so that whoever was taking the camel down would know to stop you could play a bit of
0: that audio we could actually yeah yeah that would be fun
1: (laughs) because the sounds around and the vibe there with all of the animals and the communication was
0: incredible really amazing and What was really cool from a filming perspective was the people that were there, even though they only spoke Arabic, so we couldn't really communicate with them, but they didn't mind our presence at all. It wasn't like we were shoving a camera in their face and they were- kind of yeah. we did ask yeah. exactly we and
1: through someone who was with us who could communicate had said is this okay and, and just, i don't really think they knew what to make of it to be honest
0: no and they but weren't they, too bothered by they it, weren't. which was they great. were very happy they, and they smiling they just kind of carried on with yeah. their day which was brilliant you know that often you can introduce something like that you're not spending a number of days with those people so you're not really giving them time to get used to your presence but from the beginning they were never really bothered by us and they they just sort of carried on and acted naturally, which, which was awesome. And it was a lot of fun spending some time with him.
1: You got some of the initial shots that you shot on the long lens as the sun was coming up. It was a beautiful pretty line. out of this world.
0: The long lens has actually ended up being a really impactful tool on this trip, which... it a lot more than I thought. I knew we'd need it, but I didn't realize how important it would be. Um, what do you think it is about that? Filmed. Like, what is the well,
1: perspective that you think it gives you? I, mean, I think the wildlife aspect is, is fairly obvious. Long lens to get up close to animals without actually being up close to them. But we've ended up using it a lot, or you've ended up using it a lot, for the human interactions as well.
0: Well, in a scene like that well scene, you know, it's a different look. First of all, if you, from a distance, compressing into a subject, you know, to a person that's on on the back of a camel, or you know, the scene at the at the well itself, where the water is being brought up. So you, it it gives a really cool look to some to human faces, and it also completely throws the background out. So uh, it's a very compressed look, but an added benefit is that no one's really paying attention to you 30 meters back when you, when you're getting that shot. So you do get a lot of natural interaction through that as well. Whereas if you're up close and personal on a wide angle lens, you'll often get glances into camera and things like that, that, you know, might not be what you're looking for. So it was a cool way of, of getting some uninterrupted activity, if I can put it that way as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, it looks
0: incredible. Um, Yeah, that was,
1: I cannot wait to see that sequence play out in the edit eventually.
0: It's gonna be really fun to edit and uh, we've discussed it before, you know, I've I've found myself doing a lot more producing work in the last year or so and uh, with, with shows we've been involved in, so. I haven't been shooting as much and I haven't been editing as much. And it's been a really fun project to get back into shooting. And I'm also so excited to cut it as well and uh, and really just spend the time on it. And we've got a lot of creative freedom in this project, which is also great. So we can really play with it and, and do it how we want to.
1: It's amazing how, and I would say this project as a whole for me, and then if I was to dial in a bit more, that particular morning, which was probably two hours, There's something every now and then you get as a filmmaker that just lights that fire in you and and every fiber of your being while you're trying your best to capture this incredible scene around you, tells you this is exactly why I do this. And that's kind of what this
0: whole, what this on a whole has been. But then particularly that. that And we've had a lot of those conversations about you know how many how many films do you have left in you and it's yeah, a scary thought sure. those sort the first of first time thoughts, we talked which... about that was
1: actually when i first met you in person which was in mozambique we exactly on fire exactly and just expand on that thought a little for people what... to think about this in their lives even if you know way beyond just being a filmmaker but it's it's maybe it's quite easy for us to think of it that way because we know how much time it takes to do a certain type of filming whether it's a series or a a feature doc and so you can map that
0: out into your future quite clearly but yeah talk talk that talk through that well the premise is basically that you know any of these any substantial project that you tackle whether it's a feature film or a series um, takes a lot of time if you want to do it well and that could be accessed and subject matter dependent Um, it could be just actual shooting time one way or another and then there's the post-production and there's all of the feedback rounds and everything that goes into making a film takes a lot of time if you want to do it well so you know you you are limited with how many of those sort of projects you can take on and I think something that we connect over as well is the fact that we both come from A finance background in in one way or another and us getting into film was very much from a position of you or from a perspective of passion you know we were passionate about it and it's something if I speak for myself at least that I see as a as a path to mastery that I can pursue over the course of my life and it's film is infinitely complex and there's you know, a million things that you could learn about, you know, sound and camera and post-production and color grading and everything. Color grading in itself is, is a, a whole a lifetime, world, you know. Yeah. So there's all these things that you can dive into and there's something about that that really appeals to me. You know, there's there's all these different facets to it uh, that you can get lost in. So to bring that back, I think to to focus on the projects that you really want to do becomes more and more important when you're conscious of the fact that you can only do so many across your career. Mm. And the earlier you can get to do the projects that you really want to do, the better, because then you're building a portfolio of the sort of work that you want to do, because the risk is, you know, you take any project that you can get. And I think both of us, both of us have been there, you know, it's, That's how it works and you you need to learn and you need to cut your teeth on things and in some ways I'm still there you know I I don't know if you ever completely get out of that you know you can't be too idealistic with it but
1: it's it's important Spielberg or something yeah (laughs) Yeah. unless you're (laughs) a creative genius (laughs) genius, which I'm definitely
0: not (laughs) so it's uh yeah basically I, I think it's important to be conscious of that to be conscious of what projects you are taking on to be conscious of what portfolio you are building, because ultimately that might the work you do is likely to be the work you get.
1: Yeah, and that's very true.
0: And it's it's a hard crossover to make because you can't start out doing the ideal work you want to do most of the time. But as much as possible to try find ways to actually make the projects you want to do happen, I think is important. And without that intentionality, you won't do it. You know, you'll you'll follow the easy path and you'll, you'll be reactive to what's coming in versus proactive in seeking out what you want to do. And it's very hard to say no exactly, to, to stuff because it's all connected.
1: While it's a, a massive passion for both of us, we also have to eat. Exactly. You, know, you also have to make money. And I think the reality of the, a lot of the filmmaking world is that most of that money is actually in commercial stuff as commercial advertorial advert type things. Um, They tend to be shorter projects and there's more money there. In the doc space, it's probably one of the harder spaces to get resources in to make documentaries. Although maybe that's shifting because I think in the last five years there has been more docs on the big streaming platforms. People as viewers seem to be enjoying docs or
0: doc type um, outputs more maybe it's, than they have done in the past. It seems like it. And yeah. I mean, there's this, you know, there's these competing forces, I guess, you know, there's, there's, there are more and more people that are able to make documentaries and, and have access. We exce- the other more It's more accessible, accessible now yeah. than ever before. But at the same time, there are also more places to view documentaries and more niche, you know, streamers and platforms that you can get your content, your content to add on. So, There's more opportunities to get it out there, but there's also more people trying to do it and competing for, you know, hopefully an expanding pool of money to be able to do it, but who knows, you know, and it's, I guess, trying to find your own niche and carving out ways to, to make that happen for yourself and I think one of the exciting things about modern times now is, and and in how the industry is evolving, is that there's a lot of different ways to do that, mm-hmm. and that's another place to be creative. You know, to to think about it and and think, what are the avenues that might work to whether that's to raise funding or to seek distribution, just explore all of the options and uh, and get creative with a solution.
1: And just to go back to what you said at the start about how many do you have. If you're thinking about, as I often do, feature docs, which if I was to pick one thing is probably the thing that I'm sort of most, uh, have the most desire to do. With the best will in the world, you're talking about kind of two years by the time you develop the concept, Absolutely. build the relationships, do the post-production. That's, and that's even maybe a little quick. So depending on the subject depending matter. on the subject matter, but call it two years. So 10 feature docs is 20 years. I'm 36 suddenly like that overnight 10 features if you can rack one after the next I'm now 56 (laughs) that's kind of (laughs) scary
0: it's quite a scary
1: thought it is yeah (laughs) it's really scary but you can't let that you mustn't let that sort of disable you in in exasperation but I think it is useful as a kind of focus of the mind and I've definitely got to a point now or I'm trying really hard to be very intentional with how I spend my time, and the kind of work that I do. Because then you find uh, I've just lost three months of the year doing something I don't really want to do, but it has burnt a lot of time. And yes, it's brought some money in. But you know, that's not the driver, you know, beyond being able to have a, um, a career which allows me to live. It's absolutely not the driver because I think probably for both of us we just if that was the driver we'd have stayed in finance. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. would have done a lot better done than a lot trying better. to make, make a lot more money. Niche
0: documentary films, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what
1: a shit career choice for <laughs> making
0: money. But
1: yeah, it's not about that. It's not about that at all. What is it about the storytelling? Because you have a very keen and astute eye for the actual storytelling aspect beyond the technical stuff of the color grading and the sound and the science around that. What is it about story telling and creating something that other people are gonna consume and
0: learn from that is appealing to you? For me, I think that's been my fascination from the beginning is the storytelling side of it. I got into filmmaking through still photography actually. So initially that that, you know, gave me a keenness for the visual side of it um, and, you know, taught me a lot about framing and, and those sort of things. But the thing that hooked me about film and pulled me away from stills, not that there's not storytelling in still photography. I think the best still photography, that's that's absolutely what's there, but it's a different kind of storytelling. And the storytelling style of of film of, you know, create the ability to create a documentary that tells a story i think for me is is really fascinating and and it just hooked me you know it's something i found quite addictive and cinematography and editing and everything on the post production side i've really gotten into and i love it because because it's all tools that can be developed to help tell a better story. And so for me, everything goes through that filter of the story that you're trying to tell. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, that's the thing I need clarity on first. And with, with documentary work, a lot of it can evolve and emerge as you, as you get deeper into the story and you find out more about what's, about what story it is you're trying to tell, because I think, for documentary, it can also be harmful to go in with too many preconceived ideas. Yeah,
1: that's like the Matt Heineman quote. Exactly. So oh, well, if, you, if you go into, into making, I mean, he's talking about feature docs here when he said this, but um, if you go in to make a documentary and you come out with the same documentary that you went in to make, then you probably weren't listening or watching. That's a great point. around you. And like the, the, and we both watched it and both, I think, hold it in very high acclaim and it's just one a shitload of stuff, but Retrograde, which is one of his most recent ones, that wasn't at all the film that he went to make. And no, then he found, found this character, different. Sami Sadati, I think it was the name of the general, and he realized that that was the story. It was this Afghan general trying to hold his country together while everything is collapsing and the Americans and the British are pulling out. And it is, he went to make a story about 20 years in Afghanistan from the American perspective. And he ended up with that and you just think, wow, yeah, you got to have your feet on the ground. It's really hard, but it's I've... very time-consuming. That kind of that kind of filmmaking is massively time-consuming to do. Incredibly rewarding. I think. And
0: I, I, I would, I suppose, I would say you know, it's it's kind of straddling that line of you know, it's observational documentary shot like a feature film, you know, and it's he's bringing that level of cinematic beauty to something that is pretty much obs doc and. Yeah in the story that plays out which I really respect a lot and and I think it's an amazing way of doing it I've somewhat straddled that line you know of of trying to make films that are you know I've gone in with somewhat of a preconceived idea on on a few of the projects we've taken on and it's it's difficult to let go of that and to say okay well hold on something else is happening now but if you want to tell an authentic story and you you know you want to be true to the reality of that thing which i would say for me is a underlying goal that in telling a good story you get across some element of truth about a subject matter that you know at least makes people think or makes them question the reality they know about this thing or you know views they might hold on a very surface level without understanding any of the complexity or depth around a around the topic but I think you have to go in pretty critically and be pretty critical on yourself with your preconceived notions Mm -hmm. as a film develops to make sure that you're doing that something I find really difficult is as you get deeper and deeper into a subject you you begin to know it so well and you begin to understand the intricacies but now you're creating a film ideally for an audience that knows nothing about it and you're reaching a a new audience. It's it's not like you're preaching to the choir. You
1: You can't assume that there is an underlying knowledge about the subject matter.
0: Exactly. So at times for me, and I, I think that's something I have a lot to to learn about still is how exactly to do that because sometimes I do get lost in it and, you know, I assume, oh well that's obvious. Everyone everyone will know that, but they don't and they don't have the context. So where do you draw the line to what is obvious and what isn't? And when you start filming tens of hours or you know hundreds of hours <laughs> of content how do you sift through all of that to distill it to a story that reaches well that gives context to the issue gets ac- across nuance and delivers the message that that you're wanting to
1: great challenge and, and in terms of the kind of storytelling and the kind of um, Docs and series that you've involved in, or and want to do it in the future. You've shot some incredible wildlife stuff, but I don't think you really class yourself as a like a natural history filmmaker. There's an interesting crossover there between the staggering beauty of the things that wildlife do in their natural environment, and then the human world and where those come together.
0: From the beginning, that's been very much our, our focus and. You know, we, we set up a, a company, a conservation film company, which is our production company. And that in the beginning stages of it, we, we realized that, well, if you want to create pure natural history, your competition is planet Earth. And the bar know, is pretty high. These high <laughs> end productions, you know, the bar is pretty high. <laughs> so if you want to compete in that space, you need to develop the ability to do things that are as good, you know, um, and hopefully different. So that's one aspect of it. So we realized that was quite a populated space. There were a lot of people in that space and, you know, setting up a production company versus wanting to be a freelance cinematographer, it made it a bit of a different perspective on what opportunities we pursued in that realm. But my focus is, you know, my interest has always been very wildlife centric um, and focusing on. You know uh, I, I think through my experience growing up having spent a lot of time in in wild places but very much so also including the humans involved in that and I think there, there's also there's so many doom and gloom stories when it comes to wildlife and conservation when the human element is brought in and that's often the focus where it's this kind of negative trajectory of where we're we going if something doesn't change but there's no focus on what needs to change and how you know and i think even films like, you know the earlier planet earths you know one and two there wasn't much that was tackled around conservation and messaging around that so i almost feel at this point in time it's it's somewhat disingenuous not to not to do that because there are more there's more and more human pressure on the planet so the places that are wild are surrounded by people generally, and they generally close systems. There's very few open systems remaining. So to not mention the human impact and to not mention the humans that are actually doing a lot to safeguard those remaining wild pockets, are, yeah. to keep them the way they are, isn't really telling the full story. But I think philosophically for me as well, I think to show people images of a rhino and get them to connect to rhinos as a species no matter how beautifully it's shot is something that's been done so i think the effect of that is somewhat less now you know i think people are desensitized to it even showing you know the rhino poaching side and all of that but if you can tell a story that connects humans to human characters and i think you know most of the feature best feature films that we watch you you connect to the characters and you you forget that they're actors you're just caught up in the story you know and if you can do that for documentary stories if you can do that for real events that are playing out and get people to connect to characters linked to wildlife causes then I think that's got a better chance of creating an, an emotional connection and an impact for someone and a film that Someone remembers and maybe dives into deeper if they found the subject matter inter- interesting. So I really like that crossover and I think it's true to the times we're living in that that crossover is present in every landscape you look at. And I think by connecting an audience to human characters involved in the space, it's more relatable than showing them pure natural history. Sure but I do really enjoy the pure natural history side. I mean, it's
1: staggeringly beautiful.
0: Absolutely. And before I ask you uh, one of the last
1: questions, did you independently check what time we're leaving or did you just trust that it was two o'clock for me? Did you look yourself?
0: Uh, I did not (laughs) look myself, (laughs) no. Let's let's just double check this. Do you have a ticket? I don't have a ticket. Well, I
1: have my e-ticket from
0: in the text. (laughs) Well, on the upside, I think there's only one Flight flight. flight to Addis. Okay. Well, let's just hope that I
1: Byron. Where did you? It was in our. It It was in our WhatsApp. In our chat. But assuming yours was. I think so. Seventeenth. From Injimane, two p.m. fourteen hundred. On the seventeenth, which is today. We land at eight. In Addis.
0: That sounds about right. Okay.
1: I oh, just double checking. I have this, like, I know that I've checked and it happened once to me before where I looked at the time and it was for the wrong day.
0: 17th November, 2 p.m. Okay,
1: cool. Good news. Good news, good. We <laughs> otherwise we would have been stuck here for
0: another day. <laughs> Oh, God, I think no, we should long. take a vacation in N'Djamena, bar and... Uh, I don't know, I'm by quite the pool attached to that bar
1: that we've been drinking at and <laughs> eating at. After that fantastic T-bone steak that we had last night, that we should have been ordering the entire time that we were here. We've <laughs> been ordering the more. wrong things <laughs> on the menu. <laughs> the projects that you're involved in right now, stuff that you have in post-production, um, and as you look forward to next year, where can what are, you, what are you doing right now? And
0: other than the project that we've just been working on together, And where can people watch it? So currently we have uh, four shows that we are... Only four. ...involved with. (laughs) Slowly growing. (laughs) And uh, all on relatively small networks. But we've been... Doing a lot of uh, a lot of production for EarthX TV out of the US, and they've got an agreement with Directv now, where they have their own channel, and they're also streaming through through Sky in the UK and and Freeview in Europe and Spectrum in the states as well. So. We've done three of our shows are on EarthX TV, and there's one called Defenders of the Wild, which is a hosted show with Ivan Carter, and uh, he's exploring human wildlife conflict issues in this show, and uh, and visiting you know landscapes across the world to um, to to explore those sort of issues. And we we did some fun episodes this year in Australia, which was which was something different. And we're always trying to see you know we we've done three seasons. Uh, of the show now, and we're hoping to do a fourth season in 2024, and explore new landscapes through that, and do do some filming in South America mm. and a bit more in North America, and potentially some in Canada and and a bunch of Africa filming as well. Mm. And another show has been Wild Wonders with Brooke, which is actually Brooke's actually Ivan's daughter, and she's 11 years old. She's now. She's great, and she's this little budding conservationist you know and she she's been ex- been really lucky to be exposed to everything in the conservation world that she has through through her dad and and everything he's busy with so she's got an amazing perspective on everything for an 11 year old and she's the host of this show that is a is aimed at a family audience i would say it's not just a kid's show exclusively but it bridges that gap and is brook going on all of these adventures with wildlife and mainly focused on hands-on wildlife conservation efforts and uh, visiting different landscapes. And we've also done some really fun episodes with her. We you do one with seals. We did, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I think I saw some clips from that. that
0: looked we looked like did. a lot of fun. And, uh, and we did two in Costa Rica last year, which was great. We've done, done some episodes in Namibia, not turtles, mm. um, slots. Oh, really? Which was really cool. Um, Weird creatures. <laughs> and one just about the rainforest in general. There's okay. so much biodiversity there, so yeah. there, was, there was a lot to dive into. Um, and likewise, we're hoping to do a season four of that show next year. And we're also doing a show that you've been a part of, uh, which is Hard Truths of Conservation, which is on A&E Network on History Channel in the States. And uh, also Outdoor Entertainment Network in Australasia. I think it's on Wild TV in Canada, isn't it? That's right, also yeah. on Wild TV in Canada. And uh, that's a show that's been looking at sustainable use and the role that it's playing in conservation and the role that it can play. And Dan Cabela is the host of that show and it's exploring various issues around hunting and hunting's role in landscapes where it can, it, it is the management methodology and the, the, the show looks at Land use as a whole, as a theme, I would say, where it explores, you know, what the alternatives are as well. You know, and we've, we've, you've actually been a part of forming the South Africa episode recently, um while well, you filmed it exclusively yourself, um, but maybe you can tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, that was it's. That was based around uh, the private ownership of of wildlife there, and this this idea that historically with the drive of agriculture, a lot of the game was lost. I mean, and that that is not just true in South Africa, it's true across a lot of this continent and true across a lot of the world, where agriculture took over, that was in competition uh, with feeding people and making money, and so the wildlife lost out. But the privatization of wildlife and game farming in South Africa suddenly made it a viable concern And so people then started to switch back from these areas that were pretty much devoid of wildlife back to a state of wildlife because it was financially beneficial to them in this sort of capitalist-driven market. Uh, And so there's, I don't actually know the exact numbers, but if you look at the graph of the increase in um, wildlife in South Africa in particular, once private ownership uh, was possible, it's incredible. It's just like this exponential growth. Um, So we were there with Dan, looking at at areas that used the hunting model, where that was the revenue streams, but also in a landscape where there was some agriculture. So it's not just like an all or nothing. So we were on the edge of um, a citrus farm, an orange farm, and everything outside of that, that fence had actually been previously for cattle. And they had been rewilding this cattle area and putting, and they had game in there where the model was hunting, but they still had citrus fence, citrus farms within it. So within the, the citrus farm itself, there wasn't any wildlife, but they were still using, it was the same owners. And so they were using the split of income to have a large proportion of the ground, which was for wildlife and hunting there, but they were still had a citrus farm, which we as humans benefit from because oranges are awesome. <laughs> um, so, but it's it's really interesting to see how. In, you know that is a, it's a it's a great example, of where the financial incentive exists, wildlife wins. And so that's that's pretty much the premise of that. And and actually in that in that episode as well, there's without giving too much away. Um, there's also a, a community element as well and how protein from those resources can also feed local people.
0: Absolutely. And to finish explaining, <laughs> well, to to tell you about the other series that we're busy with was, the, the last one is, uh, I can't say too much about it at this mm. stage, but it's a series that's been where we embedded with an anti-poaching unit in Mozambique and it's different stylistically in in terms of it's actually character driven it's not hosted so we embedded with this anti-poaching unit and a lot of it is in is in local language so it's that that was an interesting part of doing it and trying to figure out how we do that best but uh, that's been a really exciting project and should be coming out by March next year, and we'll be premiering then on, on Earth X TV, so.
1: And I've seen a little bit of it, and it looks
0: incredible. It's, it's been, been cool. a fun project, and very we've really cool. tried to up the visuals as much as possible. Um, like, I think
1: you've, you've definitely, the bar has been pushed a bit.
0: Hopefully, for sure. hopefully. It's great. If we can keep doing that, then we're on the right track. It's all <laughs> very
1: exciting stuff, Sean. Very exciting. Thank
0: you very much for joining me out here in chat.
1: That, that Mr. has been frigging awesome. Now, <laughs> I'll ask you one more thing because I think we have time, um, but I've left this to the end because there might be a lot of people who don't give a shit about this kind of thing because I was <laughs> going to ask you some tech stuff about cameras. Sure. So everyone who's not interested in that whatsoever can stop Turn listening off now. now. <laughs> Turn off now. It'll but- be
0: pretty short. I don't know that much. <laughs> yeah.
1: But you... Um, we, I think we both quite kind of enjoy geeking out on gear a little bit because occasionally when I end up speaking to you on the phone at home about some work trip or something, probably about 50% of that trip <laughs> is us talking about new stuff that's come out and what's changing. <laughs> you shoot Black Magics. I do. Um, pretty much exclusively. And exclusively. A lot of these the shows block, that yeah. you've just talked about, a lot of them are shot on Black Magics. All of them have been, yeah, yeah top, top to bottom. Why? well Well, how did you end up there because it's a as a filmmaker it's a real challenge there's so much choice out there like how do you differentiate one from the other what's good what isn't good and there there probably isn't any right or wrong answer necessarily to that but you do get a different look or a different feel and then there's a functionality aspect with the shit that we do it has to be robust True. (laughs) you know it can't be fragile there's things like um just boot up time for dock work you can't have something that takes two minutes to boot up because the thing that you turned your camera back on for is now not happening anymore so how did you end up where you're you know with what you're shooting now which i've seen how that operates over the last you know two weeks and it's a very nice setup that you have that is like an extension of you now at this point
0: i think there's a huge benefit to that you know to getting used to kit and staying on that kit, you know, and then really learning how to maximize that kit. So I think that's that's one benefit of staying on on one system. Occasionally I do do shoot on Sony and RED, but for the most part, part my, my preference is to shoot on Blackmagic. And that's happened, my first exposure to Blackmagic cameras was on our, our feature documentary that we did, um, or that I was a part of with um, Garth Bruno Austin and Morgan Pelt. Uh, the Last Horns of Africa and Garth was shooting on Black Magic at that point and I mean, it was already that started out as initially that was the Ursa Mini Pro 4K and so then is this before the G1 yes and then it became the 4.6K which was the G1 okay. so um, and also on the Pocket 4K when when that was oh, out yeah. you know so that's that's dating me a bit but huh. <laughs> but still a great camera so I got exposed to to those to the Blackmagic cameras on on that shoot, and I just really enjoyed the user interface. I thought the operating system was really smooth and uh, and really simple, you know. And the workflow on Blackmagic was was great. And over time, that's evolved with Blackmagic RAW and and those sort of things. Was there no were, RAW back? There wasn't. No, uh, interesting. It was yeah. That. It came out. I'm not sure exactly when it came out, but. Once it had been developed, um, initially it was ProRes, I believe. Um, I think, uh, yeah. But, but but basically, at a certain point, Black Magic Raw came out. DaVinci Resolve was also developed a lot, you know. And you've seen seen there be quite a big shift from editing perspective of people from you know Huge Premiere Pro shift. and Final Cut to to DaVinci Resolve. But I Garth had actually twisted my arm into trying editing on Resolve Early. Um, and I just tried it for a short form project. And Wait, so, when did you do that for the first time? That was a good few years ago now. So it's sort of early, the of the early days. People pulling yeah. their hair out with Premiere. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think it was Da Vinci Resolve. Fifteen. I okay. think. I think um, might have been older, but um, I, I tried it and loved it. And playback was a big thing for me as well. You know, uh, at, at the time I was actually still shooting on a Sony FS7. Mm-hmm. Um, but the playback compared to Premiere without needing to make proxies was much better. And um, and all those sort of things just, and at the time I also started to get more into color grading and then the color grading functionality within DaVinci Resolve was also great. So it was a great place to be learning about like that. In- now it's like industry standard. And yeah. I mean, so much of the, the big work that's being done is done in, in DaVinci Resolve, you know, so it just felt like a great place to be. And I was very much a fan of following one workflow through, you know, mm-hmm. if I don't need to go to another platform for color grading or something else, all the better, you know, I'm yeah. all for simplifying it and and spending my time where where it counts. You know, I, I don't want to be, you know, messing around with that sort of workflow too much if I can help it mm. you know um, which is not a big deal as well people find ways to make it work but I it's a pain in the ass I'm from just doing it of, now <laughs> it's a real pain in the ass
1: exactly yeah. um, outputting AAF files and stuff and invariably it's something that doesn't work and, and then linking got to, issues and, yeah and then you've got to troubleshoot find the thing so within the same platforms definitely Lots and if you're a
0: small team you know it's it's different if you have you know an online editor and you've yeah. got you've got a team around you that can support a bigger workflow um, but uh, keeping it simple was always an asset for me mm-hmm. because I was doing most of it on my own at that stage and uh, the then then I actually got my hands on the, the 6K Pro once that came out okay. and that actually replaced my Sony FS7 and I just loved the image that I could get out of it I found you know, its ability in low light was acceptable. And, you know, when Blackmagic um, uh, Gen 5 Color Science came out, that was, it just seemed like a really great point for for the cameras where, you know, skin tones were great out of the box pretty much, you know, and the amount of post-production work I was needing to do in terms of color correction and that sort of thing was less. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I at least felt preferable to... Um, to the Sony FS seven at the time. And and then there was blackmagic raw, you know, so then you were able to actually work with raw files. Yeah.
1: So much more information,
0: flexibility. And I, exactly. And and the cameras were pretty robust. They're fairly cheap. Um so worst case if something did happen to one mm on the sort of shoots that we do i could replace it without it being their price points are kind of incredible it's amazing what they can do for what they cost you know and as we started to scale a production company they sort of became our workhorses and um you know doing having i suppose at this stage four four kits that are often working independently being able to invest a bit less in on the actual camera side but have something that we know is really solid and is is going to produce great images you know and I think focusing more on how we're using them and yeah. the storytelling side of things they were really capable tools for for everything we're doing and we're using them to this day i've uh I've been using on this trip the the ursa um ursa mini pro twelve k um and the six k pro for all of the gimbal work but then also for all of the low light work which um you know, it's marginally better than than the 12K with. So they've been a great combination for me in the field, and the 6K Pro serves as a backup for the 12K if anything if anything was to happen to it. So, so I've been really happy with them, and uh, I've got a relationship with Blackmagic as well. And uh, and occasionally they will seed me cameras, um, and and you know uh, what well they have for the 6K Pro, and I've tested that out, and uh, and I've just really loved what I've found without any strings attached I genuinely enjoy enjoy the workflow you know and I think that's probably the strongest reason for me I think the image quality is great I love the b-roll workflow because I'm you know on a trip like this on my 16 inch MacBook Pro able no to process problem. 8k kind of raw footage <laughs> uh, seamlessly without needing to, to create it's proxies wild. or anything like that to me that's brilliant you know yeah. and uh you know, it's undeniable that cameras like Reds, you can get a great image out of, but there's also functionality things that make it somewhat impractical for the sort of work we're doing here. And I, I think there's people that would disagree with me. You know, I think there's always a way to make something work, but the you know, the operating system, I'm not the biggest fan on on Reds. The The issues that I've seen them have, you know, seems to be fairly frequent from my limited experience. Mm. Um, and things like camera boot up time and stuff like that. And these, you know, the the fans that are sucking quite a bit of dust to camera, you know, into camera in these sort of environments, it's really, really harsh. And Do the
1: fans on the Blackmagic just suck in and suck out of a...
0: Yeah, of sort of th- through the top. Through um, the top and out the bottom. Yes, yeah, I believe, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, could be misquoted maybe I'm wrong it's exactly (laughs) the same but I haven't had any issues (laughs) you haven't
1: had any issues and you've done in a lot of shit loads of dusty dusty
0: environments yeah if I think of where we filmed and where I filmed with the 12k in the last year I mean it's been from you know 40 degree heat in in Mozambique which is also super humid so probably the worst environment possible for cameras um, to places like this where there's a lot of sand and dust everywhere, and it's impossible to hide from. And yes, similarly with covered. cold temperatures, you know. Mm. And I've I've touched wood. Never had any reliability issues in in difficult situations. But you also make sure you get your camera serviced. I do. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very important because, you know, with my limited technical understanding, uh, you know, if you if you're in a humid, I mean. Filming by the sea as well is also terrible. Mm. You can just imagine that salt sitting yeah. inside a camera. Um, it's not gonna be good for it long-term, but you know, also if you somewhere humid and that moisture gets inside a camera, if you don't service it and get that sort of thing cleaned out, and I think you can do it yourself without too much effort. I, not that I have, I always outsource it professionally because that's the sort of thing I'm likely to mess up, <laughs> but <laughs> um, Shaun, but just taking yeah. taking care of your kit obviously comes part and parcel with with doing these sort of trips and and gives it more longevity. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say I'd say we've had a winning combo, and it's actually been really interesting with you shooting on the Eva One, but recording externally in B-RAW. Mm. Um, that's that's been a great combo, and one of the first things we checked out was how well we could match the footage. And I think we found that pretty seamless, pretty, you know, with pretty a good. basic color space transform. We we were most of the way there, which was really impressive. And uh, yeah, just just a really great starting point.
1: I'm just very sad that Panasonic stopped making cinema cameras. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, which means that I might have to end up with black magic now as well. We'll see what happens Ooh, when I go home. You. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's <laughs> everything that's come out and shooting sort of halfway there with my camera, but in B-RAW in in a, in 5.7K, which I've never shot as much as that. I've always been on 4K outputs and never RAW. Not really, I've shot a bit of Canon RAW, but um, not out of my Panasonic. And I think it really does make a difference. Like Looking at those images, it's as nice as I've ever seen my camera output look. And the only thing that's different, okay, actually I am shooting a new lens on this job as well
0: right um, true.
1: so that will that will be a contributing factor and i'm sure it will be but i'm also shooting a raw codec the black a raw codec and i think that combination of them i'm like Shit, this is as good as it's ever looked
0: it'll be interesting to do some tests side by side and yeah uh, and check it all out but yeah i think we our tools have been have been great on this job you know and we've uh you know we've been in some really harsh Situations, but we've been, you know, the images we've been capturing, I think, are really nice. And you know, it'll if you're not worrying about your tools day to day, we're comfortable with what we're shooting on, and, and you're we're comfortable they about can the match. Then yeah. we can really focus on the story you totally. know, and what what we're trying to achieve there. And that's you don't want to be very stressed much about my, your gear. My approach to kit, it's
1: know? like it's it's a really shit thing being stressed about your gear. You shouldn't have to think about it. It's like actually when you reference that South Africa. Um, episode that i filmed for you six months ago now was my evo actually broke (laughs) because (laughs) the fan stopped working in it and it was just years of dust and shit i guess a bearing probably died in there uh, probably from filming in the drought in namibia for months and uh then all of a sudden i'm running on bcam and it's not what i'm running on and you're thinking about the gear more than I would have done when I just pick up something that I have, had run with for three years. And it's it's frustrating. You kind of, you have to get over it and just like get on with the job. But when you don't have to think about it, all the other things are important. You don't even see the gear anymore, do you? You're just looking through the screen. You're seeing frames. And- trying to pay attention to your audio a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> um, but it's not... Um, you're not worried like where where's the button that I press for this to do the thing that I need to do? It's all very functional.
0: Becomes second nature. Second nature point. and
1: it's just story, the visual storytelling aspect of it.
0: Yeah, and that's that that's something I've enjoyed with the Ursa Mini Pro cameras where they've actually just kept the body the same, you know, and through their new versions. And I've I've recently but recently got, but not shot with, um, the 12K OLPF version now, where there's a, there's a built-in LPF filter, but it's exactly the same body, and you know it's a pretty seamless transition. Um, the only difference is I think I'll probably switch over to PL now, um, because I've just got a new lens recently. Um, so have you, shown? You haven't mentioned this new lens. I might lens. have mentioned <laughs> it 250 times on this trip. And Byron, I would like you to know that I'm very excited. <laughs> I didn't know that To test this new lens out. (laughs) He's like being like a little kid at Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Excited to get home. (laughs) Excited to get home so he can fondle his lens. (laughs) So we've been, for a bit of context, we've been, I've been shooting on um, DZO CineZoom lenses and a a 20-55 to and a 50-125. to I think, Byron, you've occasionally used the 50-125, to but you've been shooting on a... Lower. Lower. Lower? And I say Lower. Lower.
1: People will know them because they made that famous, thing and they still make it pro lenses, lens, that yeah. macro pro lens, But they also make
0: sunny. And they've resistive. come out with this yeah, twenty-eight to seventy um, lens, which is really beautiful. It's been really yeah. nice. It seemed um, to match yours so that,
1: fairly well when we did the test. It did, yeah. yeah.
0: And that, that that's that's been our combination. So what I've just bought recently is a Fujinon ZK nineteen to ninety, which covers a bit more of. So I'm thinking of doing away with the twenty to fifty-five and 50 to 125 and just using that one lens and it's got built-in macro functionality which is really nice I love the DZOs but I would say they may be a little bit soft for my liking on the wider end Mm. if you're far from your subject which is pretty minor but they they also have a fairly far minimum focal distance which is not something that's often an issue for a lot of people but for me i find it a really big deal having shot on the sigma 18 to 35 for a long time you know it's kind of standard industry workhorse (laughs) it's got such a close minimum focal distance so with that one lens you're able to get a tight shot of someone's eye even though you're on a wide lens and so your coverage if you're able to move around and are doing handheld fairly run and gun style of shooting you can do a lot with that one lens and i find myself somewhat lacking on the 20 to 55 with what i'm able to achieve on the tighter end of shots Mm -hmm. uh, on the dzo so that problem is solved with the zk 19 to 90 and i think it's a much sharper lens and, and better glass and it's you know more of an investment but uh, it feels like a good point to do that. So I'm excited to see how that, that works on projects I'm, going forward. I'm looking
1: forward to seeing how big
0: your guns are going to be, carrying this massive camera <laughs> Well, I might around. be a bit lopsided, lopsided, lopsided in a few
1: minutes. <laughs> Sean, thanks so much for doing this interview. It's thanks so great. much for having me. Yeah, it's been great to spend this last two weeks with you working on this. Can't we sit, wait to see the output. We should probably pack up and get ready to get on our plane.
0: If we're on the same flight. I hope we are.
1: (laughs) I think there's only one flight going to Addis, so I hope we're on the same flight. And uh, I'm sure we'll catch up again soon.
0: Thanks a lot, Byron. Appreciate it. And it's been a lot of fun working Yeah.